0: high-performing teams have human leadership human leadership creates trust purpose and belonging at all levels we've developed three core workshops to elevate your team with human leadership find out how to bring human leadership to your workplace at www.wearehumanleaders.com
1: Welcome to the We Are Human Leaders podcast. I'm Sally Clark, and today my co-host, Alexa Sana and I are speaking with Claude Silver, Chief Heart Officer at global company VaynerMedia. As a motivational speaker, thought leader, and industry trendsetter, Claude focuses on teaching how to disrupt the traditional HR model with the use of emotional optimism and heart-centered leadership to develop elite performance, create cultures of belonging, empower teams to be purpose-driven, efficient, and strong, and infuse companies with empathy, humanity, and joy. Today, we explore what it means to be a Chief Heart Officer, how Claude lives her purpose of being of joyful service, her definition of emotional optimism, and the day-to-day measurable impact of heart-centered leadership at VaynerMedia. Claude is an absolute delight. We hope you enjoy this deep, exploratory conversation as much as we did. Let's delve in.
0: Welcome to We Are Human Leaders, Claude. It is an absolute delight to have you with us today. And before we get into a little bit more about your role at VaynerMedia, we'd love to get to know you a little bit more first and your personal journey that's brought you to the current role that you're in as Chief Heart Officer at VaynerMedia.
2: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I love the title of your podcast. So, yay. Right. So I don't come from the world of HR. I started, well, I should say I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is not New York and it's not LA. It's in the Southwest. So my love of the outdoors and just being in nature really has been with me my whole life. And thus then playing with people in the outdoors. So team has always been very important to me. I was a really poor student. So fortunately, I had the outdoors and I had sports. To fall back on, I should say, to help me with my own confidence and all that other stuff. I was in San Francisco Mm -hmm. for 18 years, and that's really where I got my start in this digital world. I spent a lot of time kind of schooling myself in life. I did a lot of clairvoyant training and intuitive reading training and Buddhism training, just things that really like speak to me and that every day today And I found myself anyway at uh, advertising agencies. It was the time. It was the dot-com boom, the first one, right, in 1998 or so. And I just went straight into the digital world, and one thing led to another. And I found myself in London in 2009, working for a very large agency. And really, I was a strategist, so really getting, you know, trying to figure out insights and audience and getting a product into your hands. London was amazing for me because I left 18 years of San Francisco and kind of started again in many ways. And all along, I've always been that kind of player coach, that kind of mentor, just like gathering people. You know, I'm a late bloomer. So I'm always there for like late bloomers and people that I just want to be like an island that people can swim to, I would say. And I met Gary Vaynerchuk, my CEO in About nine years ago, and one thing led to another, and he moved me to New York, where I started at VaynerMedia. So I've been there eight and a half years, and I love it. It's the longest career I've had. It's the longest place I've ever been. (laughs) Longest relationship. Fantastic. I
1: love that it's been a journey, it sounds like, that's quite intuitive as well, like you've been not in a particular... And if I'm understanding correctly, I might be projecting a little because this resonates for me, but not with a particular goal of this is what my career path is going to look like, but really sort of following what intuitively feels like the right shift at the right time.
2: You're totally spot on. And I have to say, you know, I'm a Gen Xer and, you know, everyone around me was, you know, had their eye on the prize. I'm going to do this. I want to go to law school. And I didn't. I really didn't. And I think, you know, I really had to work that through with my parents that there was another way, A, for me to learn and B, for me to figure it out. And fortunately, it has worked out. I mean, the red thread in my life is really keeping the heartbeat going. Whatever I'm doing, if I'm, you know, coaching tennis or getting people into the water surfing or, you know, working on a, spreadsheet it's like how can I facilitate growth and transformation here that's
1: a beautiful red thread and I think it brings me to my next question which is I'm curious about this concept of emotional optimism which you speak about on your website and I'm really curious specifically if you can sort of tell us a little bit help us sort of break it down and understand it and also differentiate it from what we might think of as positivity
2: yeah so it's nothing like toxic positivity, you know, toxic positivity is like the sky is falling, but hey, even though you still have a job, right? (laughs) Like chin up, that's what toxic positivity is about. And, you know, in this day and age, no one's going to chin up. There's no need to chin up anymore. And so emotional optimism for me is the, you know, taking the idea of understanding we're all emotional. We all have tons of emotions every single day, every hour of every day. Using those emotions not to define us, but rather to inform us as it's not, I am sad. That situation made me sad. You know, that conversation made me sad. I'm not sad. Using those as guideposts, if you will, or data, and then knowing that we, with the support of other people, have the opportunity to change that narrative. So emotional, we're emotional, but to change the narrative to one that is more hopeful, that has more of a blue sky that will show you the possibilities for yourself. And I do think this is for anyone, not just corporate America. I think it's for anyone. So it's the fact that we have the ability to change the narrative and that there's support around us to do that, especially in the workplace. And that's the shift we need to make. I would totally agree with you
0: there, Claude. And I think for a very long time, I was certainly one of the toxically positive people or had the discomfort of being in my emotions and the constant need to reframe them almost immediately. But what I'm hearing from this is that emotional optimism isn't about bypassing or avoiding or denying our reality, but it's about experiencing it, knowing that the future still has light at the end of the tunnel, even if today feels really crappy or we're really angry or we're really sad or everything's gone wrong in life and work, there still will be an out at some point.
2: Yeah, the sun will shine again. Yeah. Right. And even if you're at the bottom of the sea, you will float to the top at some point. Yeah, agreed. And I think
0: using those emotions, as you mentioned, Claude, to be a marker, to be a messenger for what's going on inside us, especially things like anger, like fear, frustration in the business environment, they're really beneficial to signal to us, hey, maybe I need to stop and think about are my needs being met in this job? Or has this person wronged me in a way that I'm actually not comfortable with? And is it beneficial for me to just bypass that experience and say everything's okay? Or do I need to set a boundary here? Do I need to address this head on versus sweep it under the rug? And there's recent research published here in Australia that suggests that's really our leadership style is avoid conflict, avoid discomfort. And it does us a huge
2: disservice in the leadership realm as well. Yeah, it sure does. And it puts all of the onus on the individual to figure Mm -hmm. it out. Mm. Not everyone has tools or access to tools or support systems to figure or therapy to figure it out. So the anxiety just just continues and continues. Cortisol levels shoot up and your performances, forget it. you're You're no longer performing at a high level. So it only behooves all of us to get real about what's going on, not only in the world, but the cultures that we inhabit, knowing that nothing is utopic, you know, and there are going to be bumps in the road. And together, we can figure this out. I love also
1: that you zoom in also on the sort of the language that we use around emotions. Like you said, rather than saying I am sad, uh, describing in the way the situation is making me sad. And sometimes I feel like when I bring this point that people think I'm just being a really sort of pedantic about the use of language. But I really believe that how we talk about our emotions and states and allowing them to be a temporary state that really does have a connection with our brain, with our neurology. That really has an impact on how we experience life and even our our beliefs about what we can expect in life as well.
2: Yeah. I love that you said that. They're temporary. They are temporary. I mean, Rilke says, you know, no feeling is final. You know, it's very, very true. And I believe that if we can bring this into our workplaces more and more, and language is extremely important, making sure that we're speaking to someone's hearing, right? Because all three of us hear things very differently based on who we are. We have the opportunity to becoming more authentic, more transparent, and certainly more vulnerable in the workplace. And that's not a weakness. We have to change that stigma of that word, vulnerable. And Brene Brown, obviously, has done a great job in doing that. Yeah, it does feel like
0: we're coming leaps and strides in that space right now. And creating the space for organizations to do that certainly feels like there's still a level of discomfort or understanding how we actually truly shift into that. But I'm very optimistic that we're headed in the right direction. And, you know, I want to move into this question now, Claude, around the concept of what leadership actually means to you. And again, looking at some of your previous work around emotional optimism, but also you speak to this term called joyful service, And I'd love to dive into that a little bit more and understand how, is joyful service part of leadership to you? What does this mean?
2: Can you break it down for us? Joyful service is actually my purpose. It's Claude's purpose to be of joyful service. I could just say to be of service, but why not put some joy in there? (laughs) Why not sprinkle it with some positivity, some possibility, you know, a little bit of like maraca shaking every now and then, because this is it. We get one shot here. We got one shot. And so my purpose, Claude's purpose is to be of service, to facilitate growth and change every single place I can. And to bring that emotional optimism, that joy, not saying I'm bringing joy to sad times. That's not what it is. But to create and hold space for another human being, for me, is not only an honor, it does bring me joy. It fills me up to be a passenger with someone else. So I don't think everyone has to have joyful service on their, you know, their signature. That's every leader. That's for them to decide. But I do believe as leaders, we are not the heroes. We are here to turn other people into their better, best selves, to get them to be the champion that they know they are inside, but they need some help. Look, I needed help. I needed a lot of help for several, several years. And little by little, I was able to find mentors or to find things that I was very interested in, in terms of educating myself that helped me change that narrative or the limiting beliefs that I had going on. And I think that's the one of the many roles of a leader, which is to, you know, I don't even want to say service. I don't want to say servant anymore, but to provide space, to provide safety you know, to run into the fire, to make sure, like, I got your back. Like, I got your back is a very empathetic thing to say. And where do you hear that in the working world? Not very many places. And it comes
0: after we've proven ourselves. or something like that, doesn't it?
2: Yeah. Because we're so good at praise. Great job. Mm -hmm. Did a great job. Oh, that was awesome. But praise is like, yeah, we all need it. But praise is also cheap and cheerful. Mm. Praise isn't getting to the heart of it. Like, hey, listen, you matter to me. And these are the ways you matter to me. Praise
1: almost feels to me like there's an element of conditionality about it. It's like you've done something good, therefore I will give you some approval. It's conditional on you having done something good. Whereas holding space for someone and really listening to who they are, seeing them for who they are, is almost an unconditional sort of space to be in. And I think that in terms of our basic, you know, human psychological needs is such a massive gift to be able to give someone and to give teams as well in a work setting. Yeah echo that for sure. I'm curious, Claude, I believe that when your role of chief heart officer was announced that Gary Vaynerchuk said, we want to build the best human empire in the history of time. I'm curious about this term human empire. And I'm wondering if you can explain to us what that means, a human empire.
2: Yeah. And the other way he has said it is we want to build the single greatest human organization in the history of time. I like Mm. that sentence more than empire. Okay. I know what he means by empire, which is really ecosystem, right? It's a places for people to flourish. And so when people are at Vayner, we want to make, I want to make this the best career choice of their life, whether or not they're there for two years, seven years, 13 years, five months, I want them to be able to look back in time and say, you know what, those seven years I spent at Vayner, They were life-altering. Maybe they met their spouse. Maybe they got a double promotion. Maybe they learned a new skill or skills. Maybe they enjoyed work and didn't go to work with Sunday Scaries, whatever that is. So Gary has always said, we want people to stay here forever. What that means is in the ecosystem or in the empire. And that doesn't mean with Vayner attached to it. It means that someone leaves. We have a very strong alumni organization Someone leaves and we help place them at that next role. You know, there's a, we get hit up, you know, all day long about from other CMOs and whatnot, looking for people that we have. So that's how you keep the organization full, quite frankly. That's really what that means. And human, we're human. I mean, we're not robots. We have heartbeats and we need each other.
0: Interestingly, Claude, it feels like that approach is almost the opposite or the antithesis of what people would consider smart business normally. It feels like it's very almost on a spiritual level, like an abundance mindset. We want to enhance the lives of people so they move through the world in a better way and they then have their best experience at Vayner and then potentially go on and work for our competitors and have their next best experience there because we've built them into this or supported their journey as a human being. And I think so many organizations see commodities, including we have commoditized human beings as a finite thing. And so they need to be protected. They need to be rule bound. We need to keep them here and scare them that we're the best organization. So we don't want them to leave. And it feels like Vayner has done the exact opposite of that. And I'd love to hear what's, Has that been a success for you guys at VaynerMedia or VaynerX, I guess, if this is your kind of like bigger company-wide policy, has that felt successful or has that been measurably successful for you?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'll give you just an example of today, you know, having a conversation with someone that I know, because I've been told, was having a rough time, a rough go of it for the last two months. I've never met this person. We met today. And I basically said, as I weaved my way through into the conversation, holding space, asking him how his experience has been, letting him know that this just stays here. I'm not like putting it on alert. And I said, listen, are you ready to throw in the towel? And he said, no, I'm not. And I said, if you ever get to that place before, right before you feel that, please hit me up. And I said to him, I'm not gonna convince you to stay and I'm not gonna convince you to go. I just wanna have the conversation. Because as you and I know, the most important email that I get every day and Gary gets is an exit interview, and it's too late. So actually, a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, I had my team start a stay interview. So within your first four to six months, you're getting hit up with three questions. And it's literally the questions are, have you met your manager and understand the roles and responsibilities? And have you made friends outside of your core group? Have you met people? And it's an effective, you know, if someone's like, no, I don't have any friends. Well, guess what? We've got plenty of people to introduce you to. And then I write an email. I say, hey, friends, please meet Sally. She's from Australia, loves surfing and just started on the creative team. Please find 15 minutes to take her out for a coffee or a Zoom. It's all the connective tissue is what makes our culture the culture it is. And the connective tissue at work is built on eliminating fear as much as we possibly can. So by telling this guy today or asking him like, hey, I know it's been really rough. And I know you've been working hardcore hours. Like, are you do you want to quit? He could have said, yeah, I want to quit. Or he could have said what he said, like, no, I'm I'm in it. But like, there was nothing to prevent me from asking such an honest question. Hmm. I think that's such a
1: key component of what is you know, essential, I think, for creating a psychological safety that harmonious workplace needs is having that level of trust and respect between people. And I can imagine that your role as chief heart officer is a big component of that psychological safety. And I loved also that you used the phrase connective tissue, because it almost feels like there's something living, breathing about this, this organism, this ecosystem.
2: Yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, I always, I say that to anyone. And so every single Monday, we've got new joiners, and they all do a three-day orientation before they get sent out into their groups or whatever, whether or not you're C-suite or you're a brand new resident, quite frankly. And they all go through the same culture program with me and, and other people, you know, and letting people know that this is a very different place. Like, we trust you. We trust you. You already the value you can show is getting in here and listening and asking questions and meeting as many people as you can. Like you already made it. You already got the, you know, the Willy Wonka, the chocolate bar, you know, sharing like, how do you win here? It's not a word I use often, but like you're a kind person. You're guided by kindness. You do your best to eliminate toxicity around you If you see someone crying in the corner, you say, hey, what's up? You know, those types of things. You try to be the bigger person in every situation. And we're here together. We're here to turn each other into heroes and champions. Like, that's literally it. So it is living and breathing. And what I love is that they all know that culture is everyone's responsibility. It's not Claude's. It's not Gary's. It's everyone. It's Bob, Susan, Sarah, you know, Ishmael. it's, It's everyone's.
0: And it's an empowered place for employees to be in, understanding that in their way, they're contributing to that bigger connective tissue and the feel of that ecosystem. And it leads me sort of nicely into my next question, Claude, because obviously chief heart officer, until this position was appointed to yourself, we hadn't really heard of this position before. So I'd love to know a little bit more around you know, what a day in the life of a chief heart officer actually looks like and maybe how this job function differs from our traditional HR roles.
2: Yeah, well we'll start there. So I think of myself very much as Switzerland. I am not here to be the judge and jury, but I am here to be able to deliver candor. So I may not, you know, I'm not here to judge anyone's creative or whatever. And I'm not here to say you're a high performer or a low performer, but I am here to say, hey your managers or we have all of this information that's telling us that you're not meeting the mark or you've had so many absentee days or by the way, you know, people really don't want to work with you. You know, that that is a my job. That is part of my job. Now, the fact that I get to bob and weave anywhere I want to in the company wherever if I see smoke over there like I did with the guy today if I'm just reaching out to people that started on Monday and I want to know how they're doing, whatever it is, and I'm involved in high level recruiting meetings, people operations and resourcing, figuring out like, who do we have? Who's the best person to put over here? You know, who should we move around? That's not the right fit. Finance meetings, jam sessions. You know, today I had a jam session. I do these things called 20 at 20. And you know, 20 random people sign up, they get, get going to my diary, I open up Zoom, here they are. And it's 20 minutes of like, who are you? What do you do? Where are you? And then today's icebreaker was, you know, who are you going to invite alive or dead to dinner? And who from Vayner are you going to invite? Awesome. Which also, just like, let me know that either they were inviting their boss, or they were inviting their friend. And that was such a great feeling. You know, like they've made friends, but people from all over the world are joining. So it's like you could say, I want to invite Eddie Vedder because I love Pearl Jam. And that person in in Amsterdam could say, I love Eddie Vedder, too. And then they go off and talk about Pearl Jam. So there's something very real about just bringing people together and having fun. It costs nothing, right? And playing a little bit, taking 15, 20 minutes out of your very busy day to just Chill for a second, you know, and remember that this is a very big organization. Even though your office or your team is yay big, there's a lot I do so much with DE and I and learning and development, and you know, making sure that we are hiring for skill set fit and culture addition. You know, not because you all like Pearl Jam or not because we surf together, like because you can do the role. Yeah, I love that
1: you mentioned the word play in there as well, uh, Claude, because I think that's something in with this so much, you know, research to show how important that component of life is, which we tend to sort of file as adults and as, you know, sort of undermining our, how we're going to be perceived in an organization. And yet it's so key to our creativity and connection as well. I have to very quickly ask if you gave the answer as to who you would invite Dead or Alive to a dinner party. I have to know who your who yours was.
2: Oh, I wanted to invite Kristen Weg from Brighton. Mm. <laughs>
0: 100
2: (laughs) percent yeah and also tina fey but oh she's hilarious i just want to jam with them yeah i really sure (laughs) yeah someone said jesus today and i was like okay well all right cool that'd be cool cool. interesting choice yeah i mean go for it obama was mentioned and all kinds of people but you know to be able to dream with each other and just piggybacking off of what you said You know, here we are, we're kids. Say, you know, I have young kids. They're dreaming. They're talking about magical unicorns and this and that and frozen and that. And they just believe in fairies and blah, 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 blah. And sometime along the way, we go to school and school says to you, you can't bring your mysticism into here and your imagination. You need to be a linear thinker here, rational. And so we hide all of that dreaming. And then we go into the working world and we've already hidden that part of ourselves, right? And then here I am, Claude Silver, saying, no, 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 let's chip away at that. Let's chip away at that armor. It's a lot. It's a whole, it's confusing if that's how you've been, if you've hidden yourself away to all of a sudden be in a workplace that's like, no, no, no. Actually, we want you to be your authentic self you know, you are a fire thrower or a flamethrower on the weekends. Amazing. Maybe you can show us how to do that.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that, Claude. And, you know, it's interesting because what I just heard you sort of mentioned was this concept of belonging that we know is really important now and belonging on our own terms, not this sort of conformity to a norm or an idea. And I, I just want to backtrack to something I heard you say for a minute, because I hear the opposite of what you mentioned very often. And that is, you hire for skill set fit and not cultural fit and i think that's really interesting because i hear a lot of companies say we hire for the person who fits our culture and you know we can build their skills we can build their aptitude and i just thought that was an interesting discernment because i think what i see when that is the language or that's the hiring process is we get a lot of the same people looking the same way enjoying the same sports liking the same band looking like us feeling like us and so in terms of de and i It's almost the antithesis of that, isn't it? And it's almost the antithesis of belonging because you're saying, no, you can't work here unless you look like us and you think like us and you feel like us. And yeah, I just wanted to sort of pause on that because I often hear the opposite language to what you mentioned there.
2: Yeah, you know, when I took this role six and a half years ago, and there's two things I did immediately, three things I did immediately. One, I changed the name of the department to People and Experience because that's what we're doing here, right? I eliminated the need for college education. With the exception in some regions and geographies where you need that. And then I changed the way we hired from culture fit to skill set fit culture addition because I looked on the floor and we had apples and apples and apples and apples, and we did not have any other fruits or vegetables. And that allowed us to hire for diversity on a holistic level, which also includes seen and unseen abilities and neurodiversity and diversity of thought and language and obviously the common diversity which we think of as you know race ethnicity sexuality religion so yeah like I want a minestrone soup and we need <laughs> the oregano and the bay leaves and the tomatoes I love that absolutely all the different flavors <laughs> yep yep
1: it sounds like what I'm hearing as well is that you're there's a lot of change that as chief heart officer, you've been able to bring to the company and a lot of shifts that you've been able to make. So I'm wondering for leaders who really do want to make a change within their organization and start to shift the way they're doing things and the way the company is doing things, what advice would you have as a sort of a first or a next step on their journey?
2: Yeah. And I love the question. And the first thing I do want to say is I, look, I empathize that not everyone works for Gary. And so I'm very fortunate. That I have a CEO that believes in people and believes in the heartbeat and has given me autonomy to go and do. So I really recognize that. The things I would do immediately is like, I would go on a listening tour. Like, what's going on? What is going on under the hood, under the bonnet, as you would say? And, you know, are people feeling seen? Are they feeling marginalized? Do they get their voices heard? You know, do they get picked for the team? Do they feel like they're on or off the island, all of that stuff? And then if you have a CEO that's data-driven, then I would bring that person, both quant and qual, and say, here's the data. We've got 13% of people that are engaged. Everyone else is one foot out. Give me six months of doing some cultural activities, holding courageous conversations, making sure that people are are finding their people. Give me six months and I'm going to then go survey that crew and let's see if there's a, a movement. Like those are low hanging fruit things to do. The other thing you can do is pick up your phone and go on a Slack or go on to text or WhatsApp and just write five random people and say, you know what? Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for knocking it out of the park or whatever. Appreciation, recognition is so needed. And I don't mean the praise that we talked about earlier. This is like, hey, you know, Alexis, like you matter to me. I'm really excited that I get to work with you on this project or thank you for, you know, going out of your way to, you know, bring cupcakes last week or whatever.
0: I really appreciate that, Claude, because everything you've mentioned isn't a complex or convoluted process. They're very simple, straightforward identifications of, hey, what do human beings need? And how can we check in and make sure they're getting what they need on that level in the organization, first and foremost, and having those questions, listening, truly listening, sets us up to say what we do next. It's not about, you know, trying to develop all these frameworks and just crazy things that we often go through to try and find solutions. And we have misdiagnosed problems because we just haven't even asked the right questions first and foremost.
2: Right. We're not actively listening and we're listening just to interject ourselves and, you know, top down leadership. We know what's right. Well, do you really? I mean, when was the last time you, you know, took out the trash, you know? Agreed.
0: Claude, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us on We Are Human Leaders today. Uh, Sally and I both have so much, I'm sure, to go away and think about and and ponder and Uh, Yeah, I'm very confident that anyone listening to this conversation will as well. So thank you for being so gracious with your time, your energy and your wisdom today. It's been a delight to have you here.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Claude.
1: Thanks so much for joining us for our conversation with Claude Silva. Now, Claude's insights got me thinking, what if Chief Heart Officer was a standard C-suite role? Is there space in your company for a chief heart officer and what might their impact be? You can learn more about Claude and her work at www.claudesilver.com. And if you're curious about heart-centered and human-focused leadership, become a part of the Human Leaders Movement at www.wearehumanleaders.com. Thanks for being here. See you next time.